water monsters, zombie spirits, and the nine worlds held in the branches of the world tree are some of the things we will be talking about today. This week we're visiting Norse folklore, and hopefully we can make it out unscathed because these are some scary creatures. If you haven't already done this, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It helps me know what you guys want to hear, and it helps potential listeners get an idea of what terrors are held in these depths. Welcome back to another episode of the Rainy Book Nook podcast. This is episode 7, and we are going to be talking about Norse folklore, um, primarily Norway, but that does, Norse folklore does encompass countries like Denmark and Sweden as well, so we'll be crossing into that territory a little bit probably. I'm going to start with a couple of isolated mythical creatures, then I'm going to go into um, the, the real, what I would call the meat of the episode. Alright, so we're starting out with Noken. Noken are so creepy. This is a very, very interesting story, um, very terrifying. So, Noken are the Norse version of a malevolent water monster that lures a helpless victim to their death, which exists in every culture, right? Um, in folklore, Noken refers to one singular creature rather than a whole race. They do also tend, they're always found by themselves. They inhabit only freshwater ponds, especially the ones you or I might refer to as swimming holes, those ponds with like murky water that just seem to be bottomless. Um, perfect for Noken to lurk in its depths unseen. Noken also cultivate and protect water lilies on their ponds or lakes, and one of the ways to meet death by Noken is to pluck one of the flowers from their water lilies. So don't do that. Much like sirens, uh, they are talented musicians, and if you hear their melodies, you will likely fall into a trance. Noken is also a shapeshifter with the ability to change its form instantly. However, across most literature, there are a few main transformations. One of those being a floating log, supposed to be inconspicuous and able to move around the pond as they please, but obviously if anybody sees a floating log moving around a little bit too much, they're gonna know something is up, and Anokin knows that. Another uh, common transformation for the Noken is to be this strikingly handsome-like god of a man playing the fiddle or a violin and typically luring women to their death. She sees this beautiful, handsome man playing a music, uh, musical instrument out in the middle of a pond, and she's like, yep, I'm walking to my death on that one. So, you know, times are hard, I guess. For me, I think the most notable transformation that the Noken will take is this supernaturally glowing white horse. Apparently the horse is so beautiful that people see it and they're like, I gotta ride that horse. But when they get on the horse and they take rain, they can't let go. And the horse just takes them straight into that pond and uh, they drown. So, you know, there, there's a lot of very creative ways that Anokin will lure its victims. The fourth most common and probably the most terrifying version that the Noken will be in is the water monster version of it, which is arguably its most natural form. Uh, it's the form that is not one that's trying to deceive anyone. If you see the Noken in this form, it's either not afraid of you, not that they are typically ever afraid of you, but it doesn't see you as a threat in terms of it doesn't feel like it needs to deceive you. 
and either that means it is extremely evil or it is just very powerful or really pissed off i don't know but you don't want to see a noken in this form for sure it's this sort of wet looking if you know what old greg looks like i'm pretty sure Old Greg is low-key a, a Noken. Um, but anyways, it's it's this water monster that has like kind of sticks and mud for hair and, and tangled matted hair underneath, um, razor sharp teeth, glowing eyes, a really, really scary looking creature that you wouldn't willingly just walk right up to like you might in its other forms. So like I said, if you see it in this form, something is for real going very wrong for you and unfortunately you're going to be aware of it unlike the other versions while the noken do enjoy the chase and and um, the killing of their victims there is a sort of sad side to the story as well according to folklore it is said that the noken will cry and scream from the depths of their ponds um, for a couple of reasons they know they know that their soul is doomed, that they're going to live this life forever, that they're going to be killing people, so there's really no way for them to redeem themselves. Not that the concept of redemption, and especially like redemption for the afterlife, doesn't really exist in Norse culture, but just in terms of this creature knows it's going to be this creature forever. And it also knows that nobody will ever love it. So it's kind of just perpetuating this angst, I guess you could say, inside of Anokin, which is just a very vicious cycle of violence. One form of protection against Anokin, uh, if one is to grab you, and they'll usually grab you by your ankles, uh, is you're supposed to scream their name as loud as you can. I'm not sure if you're just supposed to know their government name or if like you, you just literally shout Nokin. Uh, but apparently it's very disarming to them and they sort of in this stupor and shock will just let go of you and you can escape. Children in Norway are told about Noken and are told to never go down to water like alone. Um, I'm not sure how common it is to actually be told that story or if many people still believe um, the Noken are a real threat, but people used to believe that if they saw a body floating in a pond that it was... A a Noken victim. So I'm kind of wondering if there was anybody like a, a village serial killer who just people just kept dying in this pond and they're like, oh man, that Noken, he's back at it again. The next creature I'm going to talk about is the Stalo from uh, Sami mythology. The Sami people are indigenous people of Finland, Norway, Sweden, and Russia. Um, the Sami people's mythology is actually awesome. I have heard another story from the Sami people, um, which a lot of people would liken to like our modern version of Santa. It's this shamanic mushroom man that exists in uh, Sami culture that in the wintertime travels around to people's homes. Uh, and because they're often snowed in, he would have to come down their chimneys. And instead of presents, I guess he would give them mushrooms based on uh, sort of like a prescription, like here's what I got going on, here's my problems sort of thing, I don't really know, but I, I love that because it's there's a, a, quite a few like Santa origin stories that when 
the Victorians came through and made, you know, the modern version of Santa that we really know of today and, and sort of commercialized that. I feel like a lot of these pagan stories were pulled from, which is hilarious. Okay, getting back on track though. In one version of the legends of Stalo, he is the son of the moon. He is always massive in size in every version, uh, usually perceived as a giant or a troll, but sometimes as a zombie spirit, a vampire, all kinds of things. He's a nasty, evil man, regardless of the form that he takes. Lacking in intelligence, he makes up for it an evil spirit. It's believed that Stalo is essentially the personification of the Sami people's fear of the dark, and I don't mean that in the sense of like a child being afraid of the dark, it goes deeper than that. Living in a country like Norway or the other countries mentioned where the Sami people are found means you live in the dark a lot. These places see darkness that surround them and their herds of reindeer for months at a time. There is a sense of fear and respect for the darkness, and actually before Stalo had a name, it was just like an unnamed threat that existed for very early people, and it was sort of just about the darkness in general or, you know, a void. These were also people who did not have access to stable living. They were, uh, they were nomadic to um, a, an extent because they had reindeer herds, so they traveled where, you know, in the cycle of the reindeer's feeding patterns. So, you know, they didn't have heating inside their homes because they didn't have homes, really, and they didn't have electric lights, things like that. So the darkness probably was so much more impactful than it is even for myself, which I live in Alaska, so I also see darkness for a considerable amount of the year, but I have a lot of things to help me out through that that they did not. Stalo sort of became the tangible version of the nightmares they face in reality, which is, I would venture to say, almost every single piece of mythology and folklore is sort of putting an explanation to things that we encounter in real life because that is the human pursuit what you know the answer to everything and so you know it definitely makes sense that they sort of made this creature that eventually personified their most imminent threat and and potentially greatest fear as well so as I said, it was common for Stalo to be described as a giant or a troll, but other legends tell stories of Stalo being vampiric or a cannibal-type creature, um, also married to a woman named Nania who was a vampire. They had little cannibal children who would wreak havoc on lost souls in the forest. Just, you know, your typical forest beast. Uh, some people believed that Stalo was something that could be manifested by evil witches or shamans, sort of as like a voodoo doll threat or something like that. The shaman or witch, through a series of chants, would conjure the Stalo from the underworld. However, this requires a greatly skilled evil witch or evil shaman, uh, as raising the Stalo can take some of its creator's life essence. But apparently if the Stalo is conjured and directed to seek revenge on behalf of its creator, and if the creator is powerful enough, Stalo can... I, I wasn't totally clear on if it's just that he can't harm them or he can't take enough of their life force to be like fatal or anything like that. But conjuring them also involves a deal, powerful or not, if Stalo doesn't kill the person that you have set Stalo to kill within a year of their creation, they return and kill you, and then they die. So it's, this is a ticking time bomb. Um, I'm not sure if the Stalo also dies if they do complete their mission. Um, 
or if they just keep on living. Uh, since it's a conjuring, I would think that it probably kind of just, probably literally like drops dead as soon as it completes its mission. Of course, you know, to be successful in this, you would have to be very powerful, but I feel like it's also so common that it's always the, the more greedy, less skilled, evil people that attempt things that they are not powerful enough for and they undoubtedly fail. So I'm sure that there are more tales of this being a failure than a success. The legends of Stalo vary region to region, of course. In some areas where the Sami people live and they tell this story, Stalo is this very brutal creature, but in other areas he's more of a sort of just a, a, a creature used to keep children in line, just a little bedtime story, nothing that's like bloody or gory, just, you know, make sure you do this so you don't get taken by Stalo kind of thing. In a video I watched about Stalo, uh, the girl said that it's like their version of Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, a small and cunning human taking on a being that is infinitely larger than themselves, but somehow coming out the victor. Stalo has many variations and they're so fun to read about, so be sure to check out the description if you want to read uh, some of the stuff that I read or watch the videos that I watched about it. Those are really creepy, they're really fun to read about. There are different stories, both the Nokin and the and Stalo, that are sort of terrifying, but there's also versions of them that are more on the warning to children side of things, so they're a lot more lighthearted and kind of just full of lessons and like general things that you should heed. And there are so many awesome creatures like that in Norse mythology, but I kind of want to shift gears into what I would consider like real Norse mythology and the foundation of the Norse creation narrative and things like that. So we're going to start with Norns. The Norns are female beings who are responsible for creating and controlling fate itself. While gods are feared by many, the Norns are feared and respected by all, even the gods. This is because nobody not even the gods, like I said, are outside of the control of the Norns. Um, there are two poems that are referred to a lot about the Norns. Um, there's, there's a lot of lost literature, so there are a couple of main points or main pieces of literature that if you do any sort of research, you'll see these same like few names mentioned. Um, so there are two main ones that uh, talk about the Norns. In one Old Norse poem, Fafnismal, I'm sure I said that wrong, it is written that there is not any defined amount of Norns, hinting at the fact of there being a ton of them from all different groups, such as dwarves, elves, and many more. Um, in the other poem I read about, Vulaspa, the description of the Norns, which is also the more widely accepted and what we talk about the most today version, is that there are three of them. Erd, Verdandi, and Skuld. In this version, rather than being from a variety of beings across the land, their origins are shrouded in mystery. Their names also seem to show others their abilities, Urd translating to the past, Verdandi means what is presently coming into being, and Skuld means what shall be, so effectively past, present, and future. In Nordic mythology, there is a tree called Yggdrasil. 
Yggdrasil, known as the World Tree, is a tree which is at the center of the Norse underworld. Here, all of the main nine worlds are held by its branches and roots. The Norns are said to live in a hallway by a well here beneath Yggdrasil, known as Urderbrunner. Oh man, I know I did not say that right. I'm not even going to pretend I know how to. In Norse culture, there was no perception that fate was anything other than just that. Like, you were not able to change it, and all you could do was control how you responded to the fates as they happened to you. And I respect that view. I think if we know that there's not a soul who can outsmart the Norns or his, or who is not subject to their powers, then it would be naive to assume you can appeal to them to change those fates. Going back to Yggdrasil, though, let's talk about what the Nine Worlds are. I know my God of War fans know a little bit about this, but nonetheless, let's continue. Even if you know nothing about Norse mythology and slept through every English class about it, there's going to be a couple of names especially that you will recognize. One of those being Midgard. Midgard is the world where human civilization thrives. This is the only world of the nine worlds that exists fully in a visible sense. The other realms may meet the visible realm at some points, but some are in entirely invisible spaces, at least to you and I. Asgard is the home of the Aesir, one of the two main tribes of gods and goddesses. Aesir is the masculine plural used to describe a group of male and female divinities. Gods including Odin, Thor, Frigg, Tyr, Loki, Baldr, Heimdall, and some others call Asgard home. On Yggdrasil, Asgard is in the highest branches, which receive the most sun. Um, you know, this is probably the best it gets on the world tree. Vanaheim is where the Vanir tribe of gods resides, so the other of the two main tribes of gods. Famed names walk these halls as well, like Freya, her brother Freyr, and Njord, who is the Old Norse god of the wind, sea, and all its bounty. This was a god that people prayed to for receiving treasures from the sea well into the 1700s. There's a tale in Norse literature that tells a story of a soured marriage between Njord and the giantess Skadi. It was ill-fated from the start, as their marriage began when Skadi came to the Aesir seeking vengeance or payment of some kind for the slaying of her father. Their agreement was that she could pick any of the gods that she wanted to marry, and she chose Njord by mistake, thinking he was Balder. It was a short union, and not a happy one. Neither of them could stand living in each other's homelands. Skadi was from the highest tips of the mountains where the snow never melts, and Njord was from coastal lands and beaches. So either way, they were both miserable in each other's homelands. According to legend, they would part ways shortly into the marriage. And with all of this, just remember there's going to be varying accounts and even very conflicting ones of many of these stories because mythology evolves, it develops, it's different from region to region, and there are issues as well like being rewritten with like Christian influence and stuff like that. So a lot of the Norse mythology we know of today to be what we consider the, the more accurate accounting is actually not. A lot of them are actually Christian retellings or told by people that are of a more modern Christian people. And so a lot of that Norse, old Norse literature has been lost. And I don't think that means that it's something we should discredit. I just, I think it's fair to point out that the Christians and the Old Norse weren't necessarily the best of friends, so would make sense that if 
the Christian influence is strong enough on the literature that it might be very different from, um, you know, its origins. And there are actually, there's a couple of things that we can point to that definitely being the case for sure, which we'll talk about. One of these specifically that I'm referring to uh, is the Vanir. The origin of the Vanir is unknown and the knowledge of it that is there is sparse and the literature equally as vague in origins. Um, there's debate about like whether the pre-Christian people did actually view the Vanir as a separate tribe of gods or not, just purely based on observation, but I think that the Vanir gods did seem like a more relatable and accessible bunch, if that were a thing. So maybe that's kind of where that came from. But it's perfect that we were just talking about Scotty, because the next realm is Jotunheim. Jotunheim is the land of the giants. While spiritually speaking, the giants possess power that is very similar to the Aesir and the Vanir, they have a much different demeanor, and how they view are viewed by humans is vastly different as well. Fun fact though, not all giants are giant. Going forward, we're going to scrap that term and refer to them as Jotnar, or devourers, uh, the Old Norse term for the people of Jotunheim. As I said in Old Norse, the meaning of Jotnar is more or less devourers, derived from another word that also means powerful and injurious one, which injurious means to inflict injury. So <laughs> this is where we start to see the separation. While the Aesir and Vanir are worshipped and are said to provide all things good and bad, whilst also protecting the development of the future, the Jotnar sought to do the opposite and drag the cosmos into, quote, primordial chaos. How did they come to be called giants, though? So this is actually because of William the Conqueror, a Norman man from the 11th century, which, if you don't know, Norman people are referred to as the people of Frankish and Scandinavian origins who settled in Normandy. William seized control of England in 1066, and as a result, many Old French words began to intertwine with the English language. The Old French word guillant replaced the Old English word eoten, Specifically, the old French word giant was referring to giants of Greek mythology. However, during the translation of a Hebrew Bible, the word giant was used to describe creatures or beings of enormous size, and apparently from that point forward, giant or giant became the dominant meaning of that word. So we've just scratched the surface on the Jotnar, though, and now that we know they're not all huge, let's talk about Inengard and Utengard. Inengard translates to within the enclosure, and it's described as all the things that are orderly or of a civilized nature. And rule following. Conversely, Utengard translates to beyond the enclosure, and it refers to everything which is anarchic and chaotic. Asgard literally means the enclosure of the Aesir gods, and is viewed as the divine model of Inengard. Star example. This is another point where we see that distinction and relatability between the Aesir and other spiritual beings in Norse mythology. The Aesir beings are the best of the best in Inengard, whereas the Jotnar or Devourers are the best of the best at being Utengard beings. And I don't mean that they're the best of the best in, like, they're really good, because we, we know that they, they're seeking chaos. I literally mean they are the best at being chaotic. So across much of Old Norse storytelling, the Aesir are seen as the ones who manifested and protected civilization, both human and otherwise, and the Jotnar are back at it again, doing just the opposite and trying to take the cosmos into its Girls Gone Wild era, otherwise known as Primordial Chaos. 
While it may sound like it, they are not depicted as inherently evil. The Norse creation narrative, meaning how they believe the cosmos came into existence, actually stems from the first creature to come into being in the creation myth, or rather the slaying of his corpse. I'll get into the Norse creation myth a little bit later on, so hold on to that thought. Anyway, it's an important theme in Norse literature that in humanity there is a constant push and pull, um, equally powerful things on all sides. So I guess yin and yang is another kind of a similar term to that. Norse gods are also, for the most part, all descendants of Jotnar, Odin being half-devourer, Odin being half-devourer himself. It's hard to tell entirely how the Jotnar are or were perceived, but I think that's also part of the point. They weren't like straight up good or bad. The gods and the Jotnar seemed to exist in a way that was to keep each other in check. I mean, Ragnarok was a thing, but you know. Okay, next up, Niflheim, or as it is known in Old Norse, Niflheimer, which translates to World of Fog. It is a world of sheer darkness, ice, mist, and bone-chilling cold. The word Niflheim is only found in the works of Snorri Sturluson, a medieval Christian Icelandic historian, and it is likely that he is the one who coined that name, which I want to say going forward, a lot of the Norse mythology that we just claim is valid Norse mythology is actually stuff that's been kind of altered and changed how this guy wanted it to sound. Um, there, there are very, very conflicting versions of the worlds in his tellings versus what we know of the old Norse tellings. So I'll try to point that out as we go as well. Um, so anyways, this is the realm where evil or unworthy spirits go in old Viking beliefs. If you are not a noble or king or someone who died in war, you would also end up in Niflheim in the afterlife. It is ruled by the goddess Hel. That girl has an intense family line. Hel is said to be the daughter of Loki and Ingerboda, which, this is Snorri's telling of this all, um, which makes her the sister of the mythological wolf Fenrir and the world serpent Jormungand. Her lore is quite fascinating, but I can't go over everything or this will be a three hour episode, so definitely look her up. Um, I will, of course, like I said, have all my sources linked in the description as usual. Anyway, within Niflheim, there are worlds such as Hell or Helheim, which like, Hell is technically the all-encompassing, the underworld, and I'm, I'm talking about H-E-L, not H-E-L-L. -L. Get into that again. I got a lot to break down here in a little bit. Um, so apparently old Vikings would bury some of their tools and other items that they thought would help them should they end up in one of these areas of Hell. Keeping with the theme of the opposites, we go next to Muspelheim, known as the primordial world of fire. So this one is one that has been muddled quite a bit in history. Muspelheim or Muspelsheimer is only mentioned as a place rather than an event or a person in Snorri's work. Just like how the term Niflheim is recognized as stemming from his writings, um, the oldest meanings of the cognates of Musfell appear to mean end of the world through fire, and in Old Norse poetry, it would also appear that it is referred to as a giant leading his people into battle during Ragnarok. For a little bit of context, in the creation myth that is given to us by Snorri, 
fire from Muspelheim and ice from Niflheim meet in the middle of Ginungagap and forced Ymir, the first being in the cosmos. And during Ragnarok, which is literally the end of everything and everyone, including divinities, Surt, who I think is more or less the embodiment of Muspel as a person, uh, mentioned in Old Norse poetry, like I said, um, Snorri was kind of the one that made it a place. I think commonly in Old Norse poetry and lit literature, it's referred to as an embodiment. Arrives to battle with a flaming sword and a mission to end the world by slaying the gods and burning the rest. It is important not to think about events in Norse mythology as chronological, but rather circular. Um, some believe that Ragnarok isn't the end of everything, but rather that it is the resurrection of a new world. Alfheim is next on our list, and it is home to elves. Freyr, one of the most respected Vanir gods, is the ruler of Alfheim. Uh, he's Freya's brother. But although it is not exactly clear as to why he is the ruler, there is an Icelandic tale that is still told today that Alfheim was offered to him by the Aesir as a gift for losing his first tooth, and it is known as the Tooth Fee. So I found out that, that the phrase Tooth Fee is something that people still say in Europe. Alfheim is described as beautiful and peaceful, able to remain out of conflicts of other realms for the most part and it is said to be very close to Asgard on the world tree. Nidavellir, or Svartalfheim, is the world of the dwarven folk. Nidavellir roughly translates to low fields or dark fields. Svartalfheim translates to homeland of the black elves. That is a term yet again invented by Snorri. Svartalfheim was not used by Old Norse people. Dwarves are heralded as a master of tool and um, armor craftsmanship, and they live beneath the ground in a subterranean system of mines and forges in Norse mythology like they do in, in a lot of cultures. In the poem Velospa, the only mention of Nidavellir is a passage that says, There stood in the north, in Nidavellir, the golden hall of Sindri's family. Svartalfheim, like I said, is just a term that was invented by Snorri Sturluson. Um, it is also only him who refers to the dwarves as black elves. That is not something that exists clearly in Old Norse texts. Unfortunately, a lot of what we know about Norse mythology is hard to take at face value, like I said earlier, because there isn't much written text that exists about it from the pre-Christian Germanic people. But there's always a clear distinction when that is the case. Everything that I read was like, hey, Snorri came up with this, you know. Um, it's usually heavily stressed that it was, you know, his version that's been perpetuated or that he invented that word. So Hell is the world of the goddess Hell, the all-encompassing realm of the underworld. While the modern English word H-E-L-L is spelled H-E-L-L-E -L -L -E in Old English and was likely used between English and Germanic peoples as the closest thing to their version of the underworld, which the Christians described to the Norse as Satan's realm. However, aside from Snorri's version, Helheim, or Hell, is not depicted as a fearful place in Norse texts. It's not a punishment for living an impious life. Um, where a spirit does go after death is not clear to the Nordic people, and it appears that across Nordic culture, there was a general sense of, we don't know where you go after death, and we're not going to pretend that we do. 
It is also not clear who decides it, and it seems to ultimately boil down to the life you lived and potentially the sacrifices given, and I mean that in a literal sense and also not a literal sense. You may have heard that if you die in battle, you go to Valhalla, and if you die of other natural or non-violent causes, you go to the underworld or hell. Yet again, this was perpetuated by Snorri, and it seems to leave out the ideology that there are actually several realms of the underworld that spirits may find themselves in according to Old Norse text. It isn't that it's blatantly false, but there is so much more to it than that. It's not a heaven or hell ultimatum. There is a vast amount of Norse mythology that has been rewritten with a Christian influence, which is why so many of the concepts seem to line up with biblical stories. I went over the Nine Worlds being the most notable and spoken about on Yggdrasil, but there are tons of other locations in Norse mythology that are worth visiting. While there are a few that stand out, the one that stood out to me the most was Ginnungagap, which you may remember I mentioned earlier. That one I did look up how to pronounce. <laughs> I grew up Christian, um, however around the age 12 or 13 I had a interesting situation happen at church one night and it sort of caused me to launch into um, my spiritual deconstruction, to quote Rhett and Link's own story, on the matter of stepping away from Christian spiritualism that's held so closely um, for many years. As a Christian, if something bad happened to me, I could say God will get me through it, or that God, whatever, gives his battles to the strongest people. During hard times in life, I could know that I was just getting tested and that I just had to get through this stage of my spiritual journey to someday be reunited in heaven with God. So how do you go from God created the sun and the moon and literally freaking everything in seven days, and I know where I'm going when I die, to slowly realizing you no longer have that to lean on? I won't go into my religious views or, you know, my quote, spiritual deconstruction, but I'm just saying, like, it's almost morally crippling to suddenly be without the will of God to fall back on. So reading about Ganunga Gap was actually really fascinating to me and really stood out in my mind. I mean, holy shit, Christian or not, if you believe in the Big Bang Theory or you believe in the Christian creation narrative, everyone wants to know what was there before everything came into existence. Like, what how, how did it just come from nothing? Like, what? It didn't- how? So let's talk about that. Ganungagap is said to be an abyss with no defined edges and was all that there was in existence prior to the creation of the cosmos. Going back to what I said about everything being circular or cyclical, Ganungagap will once again be all that is left in existence when Ragnarok causes the collapse of the cosmos as we know it. So while that isn't a totally clear or tangible answer to what exists before, I feel like this offers me the satisfaction that Christianity's creation narrative unfortunately was not able to do. To quote Genesis, a book in the Christian Bible, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. What? Everything about Christianity is giving it up to faith and sort of accepting that you know, the concept of there not being an answer or, you know, that God doesn't really want you concerning yourself with that anyway. My point is, while Ganungagap is an abyss, it at least has a name. That alone makes it more tangible to me. Like, that is what was there before the cosmos magically appeared. I can at least give it a name. Well, see, now I just thought about, was there anything before that? But you know what? It's... <laughs> 
It's hard to explain, but my folks with religious trauma will understand. Here's a passage from Velespa. That was the age when nothing was. There was no sand, nor sea, nor cool waves. No earth, nor sky, nor grass there. Only Genungagat. Anyway, we know that the Norse in general agreed that they don't know what happens after death, and they did not seek to live for that. The, the afterlife was not necessarily their pursuit in the way that it was, or that it is for a lot of people today. At the end of the day, Norse, Christian, whatever, we're all just trying to make sense of the world and the things that happen to us, and hopefully we find an answer, you know, or something that makes the most sense to us. So it, it, it all, the stories echo in so many different cultures. So, you know, check out the links in the description. I did primarily get a lot of my information from norsemythology.org. I found some stuff on the Britannica website as well and some YouTube links, so I'll put all that in the description. I think what resonates among all people is the, the pursuit of a life that fulfills us, or at least it should. And I haven't really gone in depth on the old, old Norse view of life and death nor the creation theory, but you know, if I do, we'll be here all day, like I said. But there is, that, that is such a fun rabbit hole to fall down. I, I highly encourage you guys to read some of the stuff that I did. You know, and I tried to tell all of this in a way that made sense, and I tried not to jump around too much, but with there being something like this that's so old and has been retold so many different ways and so many different times, it, it's a hard bargain, you know? It's, it's hard not to get a little bit lost along the way, so. I tried. I apologize if I <laughs> lost any of you. I was gonna tell a Norse fairy tale called East of the Sun and West of the Moon, which is a tale that starts off with a father selling his daughter off to a bear who promises to provide the man and his family with like all of the riches and everything they could possibly desire afterwards. Um, but I didn't actually finish it myself before recording, so I thought I would just drop that in the description as well for you guys to read yourselves. Um, it is technically a children's tale, so it's not exactly, like, heavy reading. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening, and I just want to remind everyone, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on if you haven't already. Um, the next episode is going to be a break from the folklore series. It's another book review. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the debut novel from Gina Chen, Violet Made of Thorns. In that episode, I'm also going to include a historical lesson, an original short story of my own, and some other peculiar little tidbits. 